Wait for it. Wait for it. Come on. Oh, there we go. We're live. StreamYards had a little bit of a hiccup for a second. I thought I thought they might hate us, Doc. All right. So, hey, are you crazy sci-fi and fantasy fans? It could. Hey, are you crazy sci-fi and fantasy fans? It's time for your daily dose of shenanigans over here at the Blasters and Blades podcast. Just three nerdy veterans geeking out over our science fiction passions and fantastical fantasies. A place where magic is king, the sky is the limit, and space is the place. The podcast that puts the fun in dysfunction. So without further ado, we're going to introduce the topic first. So uh, today, as you can see by the title, it's another fireside chat. We didn't want to bore you or stagnate with just author interviews, so we try to mix it up a little bit. Um, and so if you're also reading the title, because, you know, we, we like readers here, uh, you'll notice the title was Werewolves, Vampires, and Fairies. Oh, my. So that's what we're here to talk about. I blame Doc. Everything here is Doc's fault. Does uh, work for you, Doc? No. No. This is because you've been alone too long. <laughs> okay, okay. All right. So um, before we get started, panelists, could you all introduce yourselves to our audience? I'll start with you, David. Yeah, my name is David Carrico. I've been writing for a while, and I have, at last count, 16 books on the market. So an overachiever. I like it. I like it. And then uh, Mr. Declan Finn, who's a returning guest of the show. You might have heard Oh, last episode, but, you know, we just go with it. Declan, can you introduce yourself in case they skip the other three episodes? Sure. My name is Declan Finn. As penance for my sins, I have grown up in New York City and lived here my entire life. I am the author of 30 published novels, half of which are on a bit of a hiatus because my last publisher imploded. Um, I tend to jump all over genre. About half of what I do is urban fantasy, so I fit the subject. Absolutely, you fit the subject. All right, <clears throat> finally, last but not least, Mr. John Van Stry. Can you introduce yourself to the uh, listeners and viewers? Hi, I'm John Van Stry. Um, I've been writing a good portion of my life. I've been getting published on Amazon. I'm an indie author. Since 2011, that's when I decided to make a stab at it. I'm now full time. Currently, I got about 50 novels that are out there running that are on Amazon. Um, mostly these days, I write a lot of urban fantasy, but I tend to write urban fantasy and science fiction, or rather, fantasy and science fiction. Urban fantasy has been big, and for the last few years, it's been very good to me. Okay. All right. So. Um, we're here, as we discussed, to talk about uh, paranormal uh, and urban fantasy critters. So what is it? Well, first off, Doc wanted me to ask, is there a difference between paranormal and urban fantasy? Yes and no. Uh, we'll go with Okay. Uh, urban fantasy isn't always necessarily paranormal. It doesn't necessarily have paranormal creatures in it or paranormal activities. Um, werewolves by themselves, if they're the only aspect, it can be kind of borderline because werewolves have become fairly popular in modern fantasy. Um, but paranormal definitely means you want to have all these creatures, all these things, the stuff that goes bump in the night, magic, that kind of stuff, where urban fantasy you may or may not, because cyberpunk's kind of urban fantasy when you think about it. Okay. All right. Uh, what, what are your thoughts on that, uh, David? I guess my thoughts aren't too different than that. Uh, 
I, I believe there is a line between paranormal and urban fantasy. I believe that line is crossed a lot. There's a ton of stories out there that I think kind of merge the two. But uh, paranormal to me always involves a, uh, uh, a strong aspect of supernaturalism and urban fantasy can be pretty low key and doesn't necessarily have a strong supernatural aspect to it. Okay, so, and uh, Declan, I know you always have opinions. Oh, go ahead, Doc. No, no, no. I want to hear Declan's opinion. I know he's probably shocked by Because he always has opinions. We share them with each other all the time. Well, what's that? If they, what's if the they, phrase? Uh, if, you know, opinions are like such and such, everyone has one. Um, I probably can't <laughs> complete that sentence on the air. Um, no, as uh, far as I'm concerned, yeah, there can be overlap, but urban fantasy is... One would think a very specific sub subgenre. It's like, yes, technically it's fantasy, but it should theoretically be in a city. Granted, I've seen arguments that say it's been used interchangeably with contemporary fantasy, which is like, you mean I went all through, went through all the trouble of making sure the ca the city plays a character in each book I write for nothing? Oh well, <laughs> it's not the first time you've overthought it. <laughs> it's pretty much my training. No. <laughs> so I would say that to me, paranormal means not urban fantasy always has to have some element of magic, right? Like that fantasy is kind of defined as magic more often than not. Yeah, I guess you'd be right on that. But paranormal, you don't have to agree with me, John. Yeah, I can. Trust me, I keep Declan around despite the fact he disagrees with me. <laughs> it's part of his charm. It's it is part of his charm, but um, but I think you can have paranormal, like a good ghost story, like The Inheritor by Marion Zimmer Bradley. There was no magic in it, and it was all ghost story slash. I think there might have been a possession. It's only been like twenty years since I read the book. Whereas um, the Serrated Edge series by by Mercedes Lackey and the Diana Treegard series all had magic in them as well as particularly Diana Treegard had ghosts, but it also had magic. Would that, I mean. Well, I, I, would, submit that, I, I would submit that ghosts are a definite supernatural element. So, okay. And it, you know, supernatural implies anything beyond what we would normally experience with our, our senses in the daylight in the normal world. There is one thing I think I would add. I don't really think you're going to find any kind of like science fiction aspects in a paranormal story, but they are pretty common in urban fantasy to some extent. You'll get you can get some levels of science fiction in. Oh them. yeah, uh, particularly if you read anything Brandon Sanderson writes. Oh, and uh, John, I would recommend to you uh, Tim Powers' last three books. I forget the name of the series, but it's like. Um, uh, I haven't had the time to read Tim Powers lately, but he's good. Yeah, he's actually incorporated a lot of uh, science with ghosts, with, you know, the geography of L.A. It's like, hi, this is going, he's going to be one person who will incorporate science fiction, urban fantasy, paranormal, and everything else he can stuff into that box. Yeah, but I always yeah. think of Tim Powers as an urban fantasy author, really, more than a paranormal okay. yeah. Tim's almost a genre by himself. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> <laughs> All right, 
I, I will just say before we before you know we we hit the elephant in the room that David and Declan, I am digging your libraries in the background. The perfect uh, backdrop for an author are those those crowded bookshelves. So so bravo to you if you didn't plan that. My library um, that I don't know. Yeah. I was I was a I can just a see yours out of the corner before I was a writer. You know. I, I, so I, I background. Oh, I like the music. I, guitars are a good background. Guitars and basses. I made about half of those. Okay. Oh wow. Cool. Oh, that's amazing. So so I, I came to this because one, uh, because of who Saska is, you know, we've had Larry come on the show, Larry Korea come on the show a couple times, and he writes about werewolves and such. You know, you've got friends in high places or low places, depending on who you're asking, but you've got friends. <laughs> um, and so, you know, I sort of became aware of the idea that they were sticking these, what I would consider fantasy creatures in modern settings as well. And then uh, Jonathan Yanez gave me his Hunters for Hire about werewolf hunters. So that's where the idea for the episode came, like vampires and werewolves and, and mythical creatures. So oh, do my. you think that they can be in... Oh my! Uh, do you think those kinds of creatures can cross the border between urban fantasy or paranormal, or is it one or the other? Um, I don't know of an urban fantasy that doesn't incorporate every monster it can get. Just look at Jim Butcher. I mean, is there a creature that he hasn't shot at in the borders of Chicago? I will admit did he get the Baba Yaga? Of a way more than I ever thought they should. Actually. Did he I ever shoot a Baba Yaga? Yaga? He, that might have been the last book. Sorry, there are so many bloody things in the last <laughs> book that I'm not entirely certain. I Somebody did recently. Okay, okay. Sorry, what was that, Seska? I hear he's coming out with a new one. He has like a novella or a yeah. whole book coming out from Podium Audio. Uh, he has a novella that already came out with, of course, James Marsters. His kid, uh, James Middle Initial Butcher, is also coming out with one either this week or sometime soon. He posted That's so precise, Jim Middle Initial. <laughs> well, it sounds strange. Mark B. Well, it sounds better than saying, well, Jim's kid, James. It's like, no, it's like, it just sounds stupid. Yeah, unfortunately, okay. I don't get to read a lot of stuff these days. I'm usually too busy writing. <laughs> uh. Yeah, that's what I hate about David being a writer. It cuts into my reading time. Yeah, I do audiobooks when I walk the dog, and that's my my sacred personal time to listen to my books because that's how I fit it in. So hey. John and uh, and David, hey. I'm telling you, Declan, you need to get those audiobooks so I can buy them. I'm telling you. Um, uh, do you guys hey. agree that that the do that the uh, the vampires and werewolves and such uh, can appear in urban fantasy and paranormal, or do you think they're limited to one or the other? I don't think they're limited to either. I don't find them limited in the slightest. I've, I've actually seen people work werewolves and vampires and all that into science fiction and do a really good job of it. Okay. Oh, that's right. Jonathan, uh, no, not Jonathan. Jonathan Brazze did that with his werewolf Mel marine Todd. corps. Mel Todd and her we can't forget Mel Todd, who sponsored the uh, several episodes oh, yeah. of this uh, podcast. Nice lady that she is. There's so, an author okay. named Reich Spore that has uh, pretty successfully mixed it into a uh, fantasy slash space opera series. Oh, is that how you pronounce his name? I always kept pronouncing it Rick. No, it's Reich. Okay. He's, he's very touchy about that. It's Reich. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, 
Yeah, but we're going to move right past them, Doc. We're going to yeah. you're going to you're going to tough this one out. So, what is it about the these creatures, the paranormal slash urban fantasy? Because when I wrote the show notes, I called everything paranormal because I didn't know the difference until we got started. So, thank you for that. So, what is it Sarah about these creatures that people? Between his left and right hands. No, no, no. See, if you hold it up, the the infantry taught me the L is your left. That's right. Um, so what is it about these creatures that, that speaks to you? And we'll start with you, David. I think everybody is intrigued with, with the idea of just being different and being very different in some ways. Uh, vampires, of course, originally started out uh, from the, the aspect of, of gothic horror. Uh, and it's, from what I recall, I don't read a lot of vampire stuff, although ironically I have written a vampire novel. Uh, from what I recall, uh, it's a relatively recent trend that vampires have kind of at least partially crossed the line into being socially acceptable and perhaps even good guys. Uh, so... Uh, we're always intrigued by things that are different. We're always intrigued by things that uh, are borderline dangerous. And, yeah. Yeah, I'm okay. Yeah, stuff like that. I grew up with kids. What, what you about could, you? You couldn't keep firecrackers out of their hands. You still can't keep them out of their hands. <laughs> yeah. Some things never change about childhood. Fact, what about I you, John? What is it? I my lab partner's hands. Yeah. Fair. Well, John, what is it about these kinds of creatures that appeals to you, do you think? Um, I think it's just the different points of view, uh, the different personalities, the character traits. You know, you know, to me, sometimes it all goes back to like Aesop's fables and all that kind of thing, where you bring out the traits of the animal in this were creature or, or you know, demons or devils or whatever. And you use that to highlight different aspects of um, humanity or, or personal traits, people. You can take things that are small and write them large kind of a deal. You can examine um, interactions from different ways. And then, of course, there is just the, you know, the raw power that a lot of these creatures tend to have or the capabilities they have, the things they can do that normal human beings can't do. Those things everybody tends to find a little interesting. Part of it's escapism. But it just lets you play with things you can't play with with normal, regular characters. Um, and there is a, a big interest in it these days. Um, so that's part of why I enjoy writing it. I have fun with it. And apparently a lot of people enjoy reading it. Okay. And we'll ask the same question to you, Declan. What is it about it that those these kinds of creatures that appeals to you? You've got at least three series that I can think of that include these kinds of critters. So what's the draw? The draw is I like to make things more difficult for my uh, my heroes uh, each and every time. Um, it's let's find something big and bad and evil and throw it at them as hard as possible and see what comes out of it. Usually I get some interesting results out of my characters when, you know, I beat the crap out of them, really. And um, I'm always looking for the next level of threat. Um, heck, 
one of the books I'm working, one of the series I'm working on now is a sequel to my vampire books. And I accidentally, what I, the scene was always going to be, for example, um, throw a vampire up against a collection of triads who are all armed with um, those hollow points with balls in the center, only the balls are made of silver because silver doesn't quite rifle that well. Um, this is another metallurgy I picked up from Larry Correa. But, um, <laughs> and much to my surprise, by the time I'm halfway through it, it's like, I think I just rewrote the police station sequence from the first Terminator movie. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Like, I mean, it's a good movie. I truly enjoyed it. Okay. All right, so, Doc, you had a question? But <laughs> when is it that you guys all fell in love with this genre? Or maybe if, if, you, okay. if you don't remember a time when you didn't, what would be your first memory? Oh, the first memory I have is with the first guy who, well, to my mind, is the earliest person who wrote modern urban fantasy. You know, not Bram Stoker, who's a little not modern. Um, there was a guy named Fred Saberhagen in the mid-70s who had Dracula running around Chicago uh, with a whole slew of vampires as, well, a, lo a local problem. And I read those when I was nine. Obviously not when they first came out. I'm not that old. You sure? Yes, I According am. To my son, I'm older than a TV set, so... That's nice. Depends that's on how what, long your TV that's set what lasts. The that's what the vampires would want you to think, isn't it, Doc? <laughs> You're not that old. You know Same. what, JR? I think I know, uh, you can get food poisoning. <laughs> let's let's all agree Go ahead, that. <laughs> Poor Declan. Yeah, I, I think what brought into the whole thing was. I mean, I was familiar with it. I've read a certain amount of paranormal stuff over the years, along with science fiction, because I read a lot of science fiction and fantasy. But what really got me interested interested in it, because I started out as a science fiction writer, and I was pretty much only writing science fiction of different stripes. Tried a little fantasy, but mostly stuck to SF. And I had a dream back in 2000 that was a very realistic dream. And it actually became, I eventually wrote as a novel and it's very paranormal. And it was a really good dream. When I wrote it up, woke up, I wrote it all down. And my girlfriend at the time, Lisa Ann Norman, who's an author, she's like, oh, you got to write that as a book. And I tried several times to write it, kept having problems with it. And it wasn't until I think it was like 2013, I finally figured it out and wrote it. Cause at that point I was starting to publish stuff. And I enjoyed writing it, and the, that book and the sequel to it, the first two books, did really, really well. And that's when I started really starting to focus on paranormal. Uh, my first big series, uh, which is Portals of Infinity, has a touch of paranormal on it. And part of that was based on uh, Carlos Castronatus, or however you say his last name, uh, the Teachings of Don Juan, which I've never read. I have never read that story. But I had a teacher in high school who was so enthralled with that story, she could not stop talking about it. And that stuck with me. And so I picked up on a lot of the things she said and used that to, when I wrote 
that particular series. And apparently I hit it pretty well on the head. And um, then as time went on, and when I decided to launch a pen name, uh, which has that cover you're so enthralled by, it, um, I just decided to really launch something urban fantasy with a heavy paranormal focus into it. And uh, it was a hit. So I enjoy it. My fans enjoy it. And I guess I've just been drawn into it a lot more than I expected to. So the, the cover that we he, he mentioned is on, if you go to his fan page, which is linked in the show notes, the one that's on the uh, the header bar, it's amazing enough that it got me intrigued that we're going to have him back to talk about that specific series. It's a picture of a dude and some chicks and a cat in a bed. It looks like it could be mature, but either way, we'll discuss that on a separate episode because the picture was made me laugh. So, <laughs> you know, anyway. All right. So that's a, that's a good reason. I. I get the appeal, you know, the creatures that aren't quite human but are like us. It's the same reason people are fascinated by the Uncanny Valley when they start talking about, like, the robots, too. It's the humanity but but not quite that you see with some of these creatures. So, You know the thing that's most interesting about Uncanny Valley? What's Dogs that? react to Uncanny Valley. Do a they lot now? of animals react to Uncanny Valley. That stuff bothers a lot of animals. Yes. Wow. I, okay. I once heard somebody suggest that, gee, everybody is affected by this. It is hardwired into people, which suggests, or somebody has suggested, that at one point we need to be very scared of things that look human but weren't. Which... I don't even want to think about that, really. <laughs> Maybe the the when when Homo sapiens sapien wasn't the only um, guy on the block. I guess maybe it could go back yeah, that far. Neanderthals and all the rest of that. Right, but the running theory, and this is me not trying to bore you with our history nerds, because Declan and I will go forever, was that they uh, commingled more than they fought themselves into existence. So I don't know. It's an interesting thing to think about. Not really sure what Uncanny Valley is, but I'm picking up the subtext here, and I'm. So it's the idea that when things get um, close, but not quite to looking human, like when robots, they're either. Yeah, no, uh, they, when they look like robots, we're okay with that. It. Like if there's that too symmetrical a face, will freak people out. That kind yeah. of thing. Yeah, like there's psychological studies on that. It's, yeah, that's pretty much it. It's things that aren't human masquerading as human. And there's just enough differences to throw you off and make you feel uncomfortable. And not just with the way they look, but with the way they act. I can understand that. Lord knows, see, the scariest thing I ever read was Velvet Fields by Anne McCaffrey. And I've read horror, and that was still scary. Okay. Okay. Yeah. I had nightmares. So do you guys have a... Now I want to read it. So we'll talk offline. You give me the title, and I'll have to check it out and see if it's scary or you're just a wimp. <laughs> we we will come back and discuss this later. So, do you guys have a favorite uh, creature um, that that you like to use in your stories? I, I'm going to guess Declan. You like vampires more just because of your series, but I could be wrong. The problem is, I it's hard to narrow down. It's like, do, 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 do I have favorite? Uh, Favorite things to throw at characters, my St. Tommy NYPD book, it's the, the most, he's got the most problems with Draugar, 
which are a, a Norse kind of undead, which are shapeshifters, control weather, use magic. And I wound up, I don't, don't even ask me how, but in my head, they basically turned into the DC villain Doomsday. <laughs> I thought, it's, I thought the Dragar were uh, guardians of crypts and stuff. Uh, yeah, they were. I decided to expand it, and unfortunately, it's like, okay. wait, where did this design come from? <laughs> okay. So sometimes they spiral. By so, sometimes, so I mean always. Yes, and. Yes. <laughs> so, Declan, your answer is which is your favorite is yes, and. Yeah, it depends on what I'm okay. using it for. <laughs> All right, what about you, John? Do you have a favorite? I tend to like feline, you know, big cat based creatures more. Then again, that's because for like 20 years of my life, I owned and raised and even trained big cats. I've had quite a few over the years. Um, so I understand how they react. I understand what they're going to do. Um, so I, I tend to lean more towards that, I guess, is a, just a bit of a uh, personal bias there. Okay. That's a good reason to do it. And if you can do it more authentically because reasons... And that's a very good one. Uh, it works for me. What about you, David? Do you have a favorite? I'm not sure. Um, first of all, I haven't written much in the way of, of uh, urban or paranormal fantasy. I'm, I'm a big fan. In fact, going back to the, to the earlier question, what got me into urban fantasy was reading Emma Bull's book, War for the Oaks, which uh, it's God, it, how long has that been out now? 20 years? That uh, that was a book that really connected me to urban slash paranormal fantasy. But uh, my fantasy writing has been more toward the epic fantasy side of, of things. And I admit to being a dragon geek. Uh, I dearly love dragons as characters. So that... Uh, in my fantasy writing, that's typically what I what I write. Uh, the novel that, that is coming out in September, which is my vampire novel, uh, "The Blood Is the Life," is really an exception for me. It's the first time I've written anything that crosses that particular line. So, would you then agree that if it has dragons in it, it must be fantasy? <laughs> Doc's going to cut me. <laughs> Um, I didn't understand. You broke up so much, but I will gladly cut you anyways if you I, think you deserve it. I, I, I won't agree with that because I've seen too many science fiction stories that have dragons or dragonoid characters, not yeah. the least of which is Anne McCaffrey's peer. Uh, yes! Uh, <laughs> dragons. Thank uh, you! Uh, yeah, I'm trying. Whatever. And whatever. The, Pern. There we go. Pern. Uh, Pern. So yeah. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not going to... Uh, I'm not good, going to uh, put a dog in that fight, but uh, uh, I think uh, you know from from, Tol <laughs> from, Tol from Tolkien's smog on to uh, you know who knows how many uh, dragon characters. I, I think there's superlative fantasy characters as well. That's been a running joke with Doc and I is that dragons made Pern fantasy, and they she don't. just tries to cut me every no, time. Definitely science fiction. Yes! science fiction because it was genetic engineering that's how they got the dragons and it's brought wait a minute see, this is what these guys see, this yeah. is what happened Declan 
Declan, this is what happens when we have Bane authors defending a Bane author. See, they stick together. It's like the mafia. Once you're in, you're in. Well, hey, you well, on the on the other hand, dude, when you're wrong, you're wrong. Hey, you want to be, you want to be technical? The way we're discussing dragons, uh, even in Flight of Dragons, which I don't know if you read the book or the movie, but uh, one of the more interesting parts of it was how they went into the biochemistry of how they breathed fire down to, oh yes, well, we eat limestone, the gastric juices basically turns it into Greek fire, and we've got a sparker in our mouths that ignites it as it comes out. It's like, that, that by that definition, that kind of makes it a little science fictiony. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, and, and to give Doc, credit, um, credit did you to you, the, these people? Uh, the no. science of that was no. from, from uh, Peter Dickinson, I think. The story was actually okay. Gord, Gordon uh, Dixon. Yeah. Correct. Okay, so Doc, do you have a do you have a favorite uh, creature um, that falls in the sort of the paranormal urban realm? Um, I mean, I've really enjoyed uh, werewolves. Dragons aren't as common, in, I think, in paranormal. Definitely not in urban fantasy because dragons don't exactly fit in a city very well if they're big. Um, I would say I like Skinwalkers. This has been I've been reading a lot of the Jane Yellow Rock series, so Skinwalkers come to mind. Declan, it's awesome. It's okay. Yes. What exactly is a Skinwalker? What is a Skinwalker? It's a Native American shifter type. Um, okay. And so what they do is, but instead of uh, just shifting straight into werewolves. And being controlled by the lunar cycle, they're kind of cheesy if they're not done right. I will say that one. They have to be done right or else you've souped up your character creature too much. Because the obvious, the negatives aren't as obvious. Because typically they can, if they get enough genetic material, they can shift into anything. But And they're not moon called, so like they don't lose their brains once a month to being a feral, raging werewolf. So... If you're if they're not done, they're too powerful a creature in the series. If they're not done right, and I've okay. seen some series where they're they are not done right, and they're too powerful a creature because you know they they don't have all the problems, the negatives and drawbacks. They're not silver poisoned and things like that. So, but it's it comes out of Native American lore. Yeah, traditionally they're a kind of warlock that will cut your skin off and wear it like a suit. Yeah, they, they'll wear an, they use an animal skin to turn into the so, wear creature. That's why they're called skin walkers. Of the yeah, skin. I've read that one, and then I've been reading the Jane Yellow Rock series where they do, she does things different. Faith Hunter does things a little differently, but still, she adds in some other negatives. So there's definitely, like, the Skinwalker series, if you do things wrong in her series, you could become a liver eater and go crazy and nuts. So I guess if I had to pick, I grew up, you know, camping in the Appalachian Mountains. So for me, it'd probably be the werewolf stuff because, you know, we'd see wolves when we go camping. So like I, you know, I don't know. I, I've always kind of like, and then the first time I read about a person shifting into a wolf form, although I don't think they were technically werewolves, was in the Belgariad series by uh, David Eddings. Yeah. They used magic to shift, but it wasn't, it was more polymorph than, than werewolf lichen kind of thing. Um, but I didn't really, they didn't really get into the difference, so it could go either way. But yeah, that would be for me. 
But uh, right now, we're going to pause this lovely discussion because I've got more to ask. Uh, why we pause the shameless? Well, it's Bane, so yeah, I guess it would be. What if the United States and the Soviet Union had fought on land, sea, air, and the astral plane, struggled for dominion across parallel dimensions, or on the surface of the moon? What wonders would have been unveiled? What terrors would have haunted mankind from those dark and dismal dimensions? Come closer, peer through a glass darkly, and discover the horrifying alternative visions of World War III from some of today's greatest minds in science fiction, fantasy, and horror. Weird World War III. Available now from Bane Books at banebooks.com. So we told Bane when we get these commercials that to keep them about a minute, but you know, brevity is the is good too. And I think they hired the micro machine guy to just see how quickly they could get that commercial out. I promise I did not speed that up. I mean, I could understand him, so we're walking with it. We're an alternative World War Three. We haven't had World War Three yet, for the record. Well, technically, that you know of. At the date of this recording, there has been no World War III. Technically, the Cold War is World War III. Yeah. Yeah, but we don't refer okay. to it as World War III, though, is the thing. Um, the, military, the military historians usually do. Yeah, yeah they do. It was, really? it was worldwide, and everybody was pretty much going at it. It was just a Cold War. Was, yeah, just it, nobody I've never hot. heard active duty military refer to it as that. But you may be right because I I haven't heard it. I mean, all right, that's that's fair, but uh, we we won't dwell on that because that is not the topic today, Doc. <laughs> so instead, I'll ask. I heard uh, I heard it referred to that urban fantasy because the 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 idea of the episode was the creatures, and so there's a little bit of that overlap. <laughs> but when someone mentioned urban fantasy, that it had to happen in a city. But I, we've talked to, or at least I've heard Larry Korea talk about it, where he has what what they classify as urban fantasy happening in rural areas and whatnot, too. So does it have to be a big city to be urban fantasy? Obviously not, because the amount of times, you know, Larry's referred to as urban fantasy. Uh, if, uh, oh, what the hell is her name? Well, Larry Girl, has a bunch of shit that takes place in Vegas. Yeah. That's this is true, and, and you it don't actually, get much more urban than Vegas. Actually, to your point, you were talking about dragons don't fit in uh, cities unless it's the basement of a Vegas hotel in See? Monster Hunter, <laughs> whatever. Yeah. Which um, is exactly what Korea did. Yes, that's why I brought it up. Yeah. But um, Korea likes to take things and say, "See, I can make it work." <laughs> I, I, this I, is true. I would hate to think about how it would have been to parent him as a child. You can't put on your legs <laughs> two legs at a time. Watch me. Oh, he grew up on a farm. It's probably a matter of shake out the pants first, make sure nothing falls out. I think the term urban fantasy really just refers more to modern day. You know, yeah. it takes place in modern surroundings, urban, suburban. And, you know, even rural these days, it tends to be more of a, a suburban kind of area surroundings. I mean, I, I live out in the country these days. I moved back out to the country a few years ago. And this is nothing like what the country was like when I was a kid and I'd go visit my relatives up in Pennsylvania. That was rural. You don't kind of get that anymore these days. Yeah. You, you okay. really have work to, to find it. I would agree with that. Well, problem with having rural fantasy is, you know, too many sharp objects lying around. Oh, look, you're a vampire. Machete. <laughs> like, well, yeah, he's gone. 
Too many loaded firearms as well. That too. (laughs) I would say that definitely kids who've grown up more outdoors in rural areas have also a much more practical point of view on some of this. Like, if that makes any sense. You know, there's there's a certain level of, oh, look, I'm not lost in the woods. I know how to find my way. Well, also, just think about it. Um, people who grew up rurally or spent time on farms as children understand, you know, the dangers of animals. It's like a lot of domestic animals uh, are actually can be pretty deadly. More people are killed by cows than are killed by sharks. Uh, you fall into a pig pen, no, you're gone, man. They'll eat you. Number when I was a kid, the term of what happened to little Timmy? Oh, Timmy fell in the pig pen. And, yeah. you know, so people on farms and stuff, they know that animals are not always kind and friendly. So they're a little more cautious. They're not going to be just running into certain situations. And In the 90s, the largest, of the number one cause of injuries and animal attacks was squirrels at national parks. Was which? With squirrels. Squirrels? Uh, Wow. Okay. Because squirrels don't I, have I'm great having... eyesight, and they're going here. They're trying to feed it a hot dog, and you know what else looks a lot like a hot dog? A finger. Fingers. <laughs> okay. Okay. So, so David, what about you? Do you think uh, urban fantasy can exist outside of like a major metropolitan area? And if so, what are your thoughts on it in general? Certainly, I think the uh, the tropes and the, uh, the tools of telling an urban fantasy story can be applied in a in a rural setting. That's I don't see any problem with that, uh, except that if you're going to write a story that has any kind of an element of noir to it, it almost has to be urban because noir stories, the city is always a character in its own right. So if you're if you're going to tell a story where the city is a is a character in, in your story, it, it's obviously got to be urban. Okay. So what is it about these creatures, like the vampires and the werewolves, and that make them, do you think, so eternal? Because you, you hear stories in legend and lore that go back across cultures that have never had never yet interacted, that go back as far as we know stories to go. What do you think keeps these kinds of stories so alive for people? The the werewolves, the vampires, the, the... You know where the vampire myth comes from, right? I do not. Is it Judas, right? Excuse me? Judas? No. Is it from the Bible with Judas? No, oh, no. It predates all that. I, I understand yeah. that they used to deal with wild animals, and this is still a problem today for a lot of zoos and stuff. Um, there's a thing known as flea death. Flea death is when you have so many fleas on you that they suck all the blood out of your body and you literally have no blood in your body. And in the olden days when you had people who didn't clean themselves very well, didn't have any good hygiene, flea death was a common occurrence. So people would come in and they would find somebody who had no blood in their body and was dead because the fleas all leave after they drain the dry and they go elsewhere. So there's no obvious sign of what killed them. And... Um, cedar, those kind of woods, things that you use against vampires, that re- that repels a lot of insects, especially oh. bloodsuckers. Same for garlic. Same for even, in some cases, onions. These are things that repel bloodsuckers. Water, not crossing water. Fleas can't cross water. You look at a lot of the vampire myths, and it really ties back to these things that 
people happened to them, but they didn't understand. So okay. David or Declan, do you have anything to add or because I didn't know any of that, but it's it's interesting. Things you learn when you raise animals. <laughs> yeah. You mentioned yeah. the Bible you mentioned the Bible. There is at least one passage that refers to um, depending on which translation you look at, that refers to a monster that uh, is uh, usually referred to as a lamia, which is considered I think is considered to be a, a a vampire variant and uh, Jewish tradition says that uh, Lilith was supposedly Adam's first wife and therefore uh, when when whatever caused the splitting of the ways she became a monster and uh, and is according to again which authority you're looking at is sometimes referred to as a vampire so uh, with that you're you're going back four or five thousand years so okay. it, it's it's that just that version of the story alone four or five thousand years you know these stories have been obviously been around for a long time and you get yeah. into other cultures and you, you find similar kinds of stories so it's oh, yeah. been around yeah. for a long time yeah you throw a rock at history and history and mythology you'll find a vampire or something that looks a lot like a vampire somewhere in <clears throat> trust me after a while well, it's like yes I think the concept of something that drains you dry is is really scary innately. It, it hits at our core being of survivability, for sure. Yeah. So uh, uh, there's a large factor of, gee, the uncanny valley aspect to it lends an aspect of horror. God only knows how far people telling ghost stories around a campfire goes. I don't think there's any records on that. That I know of. But... Um, yeah, it's the idea of, yes, there's something that looks human and hunts humans. Yeah, it's going to ter terrify the crap out of most people if they have some any it, sense. Some of it also comes back to things like Aesop's fables and things. You're trying to teach kids and you're trying to teach them through culture or you're trying to teach people who didn't have a good education or any or good rational thought not to do certain things because those certain things would lead to danger. And sometimes taking something, you don't know what's killing these people, but they know that they keep seeing people going off and doing something. They find them dead. They don't realize that, oh, yeah, there's leopards in the trees that are eating everybody or something like that. So they come up with some kind of way to explain it because things that hunt at night, humans have terrible night vision. You find somebody in the morning who's dead out in the fields or whatever, and the imagination is going to run wild because you really don't have a way of understanding it. And also it's easier to get people to be a little more careful when you start telling stories about things. And of course we all have imaginations that run wild. That's why we all have jobs, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, I think I, a large part well, of it, I, go ahead, doc. I was going to say, I think uh, David hit on a great topic of, Lilith, I mean, she's known as the mother of all demons. So where did demons and devils fit in this? So, are they fantasy, paranormal? Doc, or can, you, can you hold that one so I could... No. Uh, so one of the things to answer no. why why I think they're these kinds of stories are eternal is because if you think about it from a, um evolutionary standpoint, 
the creatures that jumped at everything, whether they were right or wrong, their fear kept them alive. And the ones that weren't fearful sometimes got eaten by the bear or the tiger or whatever. So from a survival aspect, <clears throat> being fearful is almost bred into us. And so the love of the yeah. horror, the fear aspect well, of it, I think, plays in there. From a neurological standpoint, so when we we review memories and we talk about them, we rehash them, whatever it is, we're ingraining them in our brains each time. And our brains are hardwired to take those negative experiences much quicker into account because of survival, because they're tied with survivability. So we're, it's part of it's how we're designed, but also I have a 10 year old. I'm going to tell you if I want him to learn something, if I put an entertaining video on, like when he was a little kid, my son's been able to explain force vectors and stuff like that. Cause it was in a cartoon since he was like six or actually four. So if you make something entertaining, so these tales, if they're entertaining, they start to teach because they're paying attention more. Well, so you're telling me he can explain math to me? Oh, no. My son is actually much better at math than you are, JR, and has been for a couple years now. <laughs> one, of the, one of the things about though, demons and devils, they're, the entomology of that word, I think, goes back to like the Greeks. It, it's, it doesn't Demons and devils are, on the whole face of the thing, kind of new. They've only been around for, what, three, 4,000 years, those terms, if that. Because it's, it's a new term. It's a new concept. Um, I had to do some research on it for a particular series, short series I wrote, where somebody went from being a god to being considered a demon. And it had to do with the changing of the word because you had all these creatures that weren't considered demons in old mythology that but eventually became demons in more recent terms because the words changed, the language changed, and people's fears changed, and modern culture changed. Funny. Um, by recent, you mean 3,000 years ago, 2,000 years ago? I have because... to look up the time. I think it's about... I think it's 2,500 to 3,000 years ago because it was, I think, around the times yeah. of ancient Greece that that word started to change. Yeah, that, I just wanted to clarify the, your use of the word recent. Well, <laughs> human history, that is kind of recent. Maybe not mm -hmm. recorded history, but... Show of hands, how many people thought when he meant recent he meant maybe the last few hundred years? Well, I mean, at grad school, I dealt with a lot of people that studied even farther back. So, yeah, you know... The Civil War uh, Revolution was even considered recent to them. So, yeah, it's, okay, it's all good. about how far back you study on scope. I, I, so, I, I was tracking you, John. I have a series that refers back um, many times to tens of thousands of years in drop comments to show how old somebody is. And so there are times I've had to sit down and look at, like, okay, what was going on 100,000 years ago? Because I need a comment that will show that can be dropped that this person was there. So I've done a bit of okay. in the last couple of years. Yeah, but trust me, I have noticed that not not a lot of more people of an obsession. Of, yeah, I, I, I have noticed that there are people who don't know that much about anything that happened before they were born. There are friends of mine who don't know who fought in World War One, which broke my brain for a few hours. So uh, but just um, wanted to clarify. Yeah, that kind of breaks my brain thinking about that. How did you find? Never mind. 
Gotcha. Um, but I mean, I did see something that actually pointed out something great about our perception of time, which is Martin Luther King and Anne Frank were born in the same year. Really? Really? Yeah. And Marilyn Monroe and Queen Elizabeth. And it's just interesting how it changes our perception of the time at oh, which yeah. things happen. So. Well, here, here's one that'll boil your mind. The last person receiving a pension from Civil War died in 2019. Yeah, I remember the that. daughter of one of the veterans. Yeah. Um, so, I, I the time issue is going to we, we can come back to because I think that could be interesting in how it plays with creatures that have such long lives. But Doc, before we do that, um, I derailed you briefly. You were going to ask about the Lilith and the the demons and stuff. And that, that's an interesting segue. I'm so, to talk about it, actually, with like <laughs> devils and demons being a more recent thing. But I think some of it also is Declan. Like, to kind of poke at other cultures, too. What What's up, Declan? I was just well, he was doing air quotes around recent. Yeah, I was just highlighting that part. Like, <laughs> he was just highlighting recent. <laughs> more, more recent. You keep using this word. You <laughs> don't know what this means. It is fun to get into other cultures and use them, especially in a paranormal setting. I mean, I've, I've done a few stories where I've used mythologies from other Earth cultures and put them in there. And it's it's a bit of work. Um, I was kind of inspired to that because Roger Zelazny did, uh, you know, Lord of Light, which is heavily into Indian culture. Mm -hmm. And uh, I dug into American Indian culture for one trilogy I wrote, and I had to get really deep into that because I wanted to make sure I got it right, or some of my ancestors would strangle me. Okay. Um, so is there any favorite of these other cultures when you're looking for um, creatures to use that, you know, the the mythical, if you, you know, is an umbrella term that you prefer? Is there anyone that provides you the most fodder? There's so many out there. I mean, in Indian culture has some good ones. Um, European culture has some very good ones. And American Indian culture actually has some good ones, too. Um, the American Indian God Pantheon, uh, a lot of the Midwestern and Western Indian tribes, is really fascinating. Um, but like you like said, if you, if you want to find a God for any particular thing in the world, check out india hmm. i used this to work okay. i used to work with a team of like 30 guys from india guys and gals and i mean they used to love to tell me about all different gods and what they symbolized and what all the different things were and um i remember there was a tv show that actually caught one of these things and i just know everybody who watched it was wondering what the hell is this guy doing? Because he goes and puts an elephant on the front of the spaceship. But that has to do with an Indian thing. Where if you're going to travel that particular Ganesh. guy, you go and make an offering to. Well, and I think really also some of that is India is one of the few cultures still that ha has kept their polytheistic beliefs alive and, and vibrant still. Um, but how well, do you kind of go... Keep in mind the history of India. That place was oh, a crossroads of conquering uh, armies for centuries. And the base culture simply assimilated the belief system of every conqueror. But they never got rid of anything. <laughs> so, of course, they have a pantheon 
that includes everything that you can conceive of because they've assimilated it all from other cultures. And so, if you, sorry, no, go ahead. Go. No, um, if you will ask, and if you ask any Hindu, and I've asked a few just to make sure I've got it right, uh, most of them will insist that yes, we have, a, yes, we worship all these gods, but they're really all just different faces of one god. So it's like, so, if, so are you polytheistic or monotheistic? Let's flip a coin on that. Yeah. It depends which you talk to. Talk to a yeah. Buddhist sometimes. They're fascinating. <laughs> yeah. Well, no. I know I know one of the frustrating elements that, that Christian missionaries have faced in India over the years has been the tendency that, oh, yes, we'll accept Jesus. We'll just put him on the shelf with everybody else. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right, Doc, you had a question? Well, so I was going to ask, how is it that you kind of go about some of that research and use respectfully? Because, I mean, in, I know I know you know, all of you are guys who are great. You really do respect other cultures, other, other the, beliefs. But how is it that you carry that into your writing? The, the whole respectful thing. First off, you got to understand someone's always going to find a problem with anything you do. Yeah. So you, you don't worry about those. But if you find, if you read into the stuff enough, if you read enough of it, and you've talked to people involved in it who follow some of those religions, you'll get an understanding pretty quickly of what is good and what's bad. And the thing is, is not to make light of it, not to make fun of it. Or if you have someone who makes fun of it in your book, then they get a comeuppance. You know, for me, okay. I'm part Native American. It's a small part, but I am part Native American. So when I was doing stuff with the Western tribes, because I'm part, you know, Seneca Valley Mohawk, and this took place out West, so I couldn't use any of that. Um, I want to be respectful because I always want to see American Indians done well. You know, I, I have a friend, it's just a side story. I have a friend who's about a quarter Native American, and he hates the westerns, you know, the cowboys. He goes, yeah, and I, I we were at a place as many years ago, and I, I pulled out this movie. He goes, no, I don't want to see another one with the bad, you know, the good white man and the bad, you know, Indian, blah blah blah. I said, no, you really got to see this, and it was Little Big Man. Oh, that's a good one. <laughs> Love that movie. He laughed so hard through that thing. He goes, you were right. I had to see that movie. Okay. Okay. Usually, when um, usually I will find experts and I will go for clarification on certain things. Um, there are, for example, um, my St. Tommy series, book seven, I wound up using, uh, Asatru mainly because I kept tripping over people online who were, well, how do I put this? European, they claimed to be, you know, worshiping Norse deities and they were general jerks is too light a word. And then it's like, okay, I know at least. Four different Asatru who have none of these beliefs. I need to ask for clarification. And um, you know, I went to this guy. I went to Erin Lale, who is funny enough writing a book on the subject. And you know, she worships Loki. So, so I asked uh, for clarification, and she said, "All right, let me run you through these seven different types." And uh, oh yeah, these are jerks. These are Nazis. Um, these are morons. Uh, these are bro-satru who will say, you know, Valhalla, bow, brother. And, you know, they work out of a 7-Eleven and were never, never saw military service. 
Uh, that's more or less a direct quote. <laughs> and after a while, I just said, screw it, copy, paste, rewrite his dialogue. <laughs> <laughs> so that's the problem, though, if you go for some of the, the pagan stuff out of out of Europe is the Romans were so good at eradicating them and their beliefs that not a lot survived. So when you want to refer back, it's almost all Neo whatever insert belief system because they're guessing. Well, if you look around, so, you can find um, books on it. Um, I have a book somewhere around here. It cost me around. $70. And it's photocopies of stuff from one of the very old... Um, libraries somewhere in Europe, I forget where, where they went and they got all the ancient books on a bunch of different, and this is for fairy stuff and the Gaelic things and the old Irish stuff. And they photocopied all the pages from all these manuscripts, put it together, and they just sell it on Amazon. And it's a great research thing because it's got all the old tales, all the old stuff. But it was not cheap. And if you look around, you can find uh, collections. And some people have allowed these collections to be copied so they can be sold. And you can find things that are really old that get into some of this stuff and get into some of the older religions and older beliefs. Um, also, if you know, if you've got friends overseas, it's like I have some friends still kicking around in you know, Scotland and stuff. And these people, their families have been there for like a thousand years. So they have some really good stories they pass down. Oh, and actually something towards uh, John's point earlier, uh, I had in one of my novels, a somebody was raising a demon and uh, somebody took offense that the demon looked like Tiamat. Granted, I gave it seven heads instead of six because taste, you know, sometimes you taste the rainbow, sometimes the rainbow tastes you. And uh, <laughs> I had even put in a line that you might recognize where, you know, our bad guy is confessing to everything and he was, you know, he had been told to pick the form of the destructor. It's like, could I make it any clearer that I was ripping off Ghostbusters? But, um, you know, and I wasn't going to pick the Stay Puff Marshmallow Man. <laughs> And somebody said, well, he's using, oh, yes, well, he's continuing the tradition of using the old gods as demons. It's like, no, this guy just picked the form to look like that. Because, <laughs> you know, a kaiju demon with seven heads and blows fire and other miscellaneous weaponry is creepy. <laughs> and also will make Godzilla okay. go, nope, I'm going. <laughs> so... What about you, David? Um, do you have a, when you try to incorporate these other cultures to get the, the mythos, is there any trick you use when you want to make sure it's, uh, it's respectful, as, as Doc had asked? Oddly enough, I had to deal with that in the novel that Dane is publishing in September because my leading character is Jewish. Uh -huh. And I am very much not Jewish. So uh, you, the story begins with a young Jewish man who was raised Orthodox, discovering that he's a vampire and having an existential crisis because the Bible says, thou shalt not eat blood for the blood is the life and is sacred to the Lord. That's the cornerstone of the kosher laws. And every Orthodox Jew would be, you know, would immediately have a, uh, a frenzy because as a vampire, you can't exist if you don't eat blood. 
So that 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 okay. was the beginning of the book. But the book tries to play what I, I tried very hard to play honestly with Jewish beliefs and Jewish customs and Jewish practice at the same time dealing with a character who was Jewish but was in a position where his very existence was abhorrent to him. And uh, I... I know a little bit about Jewish practices, you know, maybe this much, just enough to get into trouble. Uh, but it was important to me that I get it right. So among other things, I, by the time Bain decided to publish it, I think it had been read by six different Jewish people, at least three of which were Orthodox. And I got suggestions and I... Uh, was able to accept all of the suggestions because none of them made any real difference to the to the thrust of the story. But you know that that would be my you know regardless of what belief system you're you're trying to work with that would be my my uh, my suggestion to any writer is. Now I will notice that none of us are talking about sensitivity readers. We're talking about research readers. Yes, exactly. Subject matter experts. Mm -hmm. Subject matter experts. Is the Peter. So, people who are entitled to have an opinion. Yes. So, we've talked about a lot about the uh, the creatures that you use. I, I didn't realize this topic was as big as it was. I would have narrowed it down had I known. Doc should have warned me. It's all her fault. So, we're definitely going to do some more fireside chats in this field. I've but uh, we have been at. I know DragonCon sucked you into the the vortex of work and sleep, and it's just been crazy. Um, there? But before we leave, I, I assume she sleeps at the work when she's like mixing chemicals. Yeah, strong acids and bases. <laughs> Talk about things. But, that uh, but, so, but before before we go, we've talked about the kinds of creatures you've all written into your books. Is there any creature that would fit in sort of this this realm that you haven't used that you want to at some point? I'm still Declan using Declan has them. so many books, I don't know. Yeah, I, I, <laughs> I don't know. Really so many books, I've lost track. All right. So it's like, wait, I've already, I've used the Wendigo. I've used Hopping Vampires. It's like, no, I, I'm, I'm running. I'm, I'm running out of monsters. Sounds like you're just okay. going to. What about you, John? You know, I've, I have one series that was heavily into demons and devils and difference between the two. Um, I have another series that looks under my pen name, which is basically about uh, magic users, lycanthropes, and then a war against demons and, you know, invading from another dimension. It turns into a, a world kind of a war. So I think about the only thing I haven't really used is zombies, and I really didn't want to ever get on the zombie bus. I think I've pretty much used just about everything there is at this point. I recommend using zombies okay. as tools of a bocor. That way, they're weapons. They're not actually monsters. What is a bokor? Uh, a bokor. <laughs> Do I want to know? It, it's out of voodoo or voodoo or however you want to pronounce it, the uh, mythology, where he's basically a voodoo ne uh, necromancer. That's the short version. Okay. All right. And what about you, David? Is there any that you haven't used yet that you'd like to work into a story? I'm sitting here contemplating a story involving a uh, a Japanese shifter landing in New Orleans. Okay. 
at Mardi Gras. Oh, that would be interesting. Go on. Uh, we'll have to have you back to talk about that one when it when it's done. Um, and speaking of um, John and, and David, we'll definitely want to have you back to talk about your series that you've hinted at today because Doc and I are curious. But before we let you go, what are you guys working on right now? Uh, David, since you were last, we'll let you. What are you writing right now? Um, currently, I'm writing a space opera. Uh, Eric Flint and I have a contract with Bain to produce a new space opera, which is uh, not set in any of his other series. And even though Eric has passed on, I have confirmed with Tony Weisskopf that uh, she will be willing to uh, accept the book if I if I finish it. So that's, Is that's this my next project. To? He and I plotted it together, but uh, our approach was going to be, I was going to write the first draft and then he was going to do the polish and the submission draft. And since he passed away last week, that's no longer possible. So I've already confirmed with Tony that if, if I can get it done, she will consider and we will move on from there. Okay. What about you, John? What are you writing right now? Um, I'm trying to get started on the sequel to uh, Summer's End, which is the book I have coming out with Bain in December. Uh, I'd like to get that all wrapped up here, so hopefully by the end of next month, so I, I can get it out of my hair. And just the whole for me, I'm getting used to this whole process of all the time it takes. So you know, get something, give it to them, and then I don't have to think about it for a while. Once that's done, I promised everybody I would write another book in the Portals of Infinity series. And then after that, I have like about six different things I want to write. It comes down to which one will I get to first? That's a fair, that's a fair concern. And Declan, last but not least, I think you're on novel 127, but I can't confirm yet. What are you writing right now? Well, it's only more like novel 35. Um, I am editing two Only. my white. <laughs> I'm editing my two of my space opera novels at the moment, while simultaneously writing book three of the sequel series to the Vampires, while doing uh, an outline for what I will simply refer to as my superhero series that is probably six months to a year away from even being started. Okay. So I'm a little busy. And uh, Doc, busy. Doc, uh, this will be airing the first or second week of August. So how are things going with the Dragon Con planning? They're going. So <laughs> you're too sober to answer that question. I got so, it. So the sci-fi track has already published what their schedule is going to look like. No, they've published what they think their schedule is going to look like right now. So we have submitted and done the big database lockout, which means... Um, most of us cannot go in and butts with things as they're getting finalized. And then the at this point, by the time this airs, all the attending professionals and guests should have their perspective schedules, which they then have to approve because you know we don't we don't really know all of your cal calendars. You may have publisher meetings already set up that a panel may conflict with. So, from there, and this is kind of funny because everybody always goes, when's the app going to get updated? And um, it, and I'm literally going, there's nothing to put in it yet, guys. So shut up. Um, 
So we will then, they'll collect those responses and then finalize the app. And during that, I'll get emails like, hey, um, this person isn't able to do this panel because there's a conflict. Or, oh yeah, this person's a Dragon Award winner and their uh, nomination nominee. And um, they're going to be coming to Dragon Con, find them a panel. Or for when do the nominations get or the nominees get announced? The nominees get announced roughly. So we, uh, so what happens is the emails, nominations are closed June, July nineteenth, and then they'll tally them. They'll send out an email. Look for that if you're an author in the first week, because. Uh, most uh, hopefully by the time this airs, the nominees will have been notified and they will have done this very important response thing that one of them forgot to do for a very long time last year. <coughs> Sorry, set it back by weeks, which is check your emails, look for them because he forgot to reply and say, Great, I plan on being there. And so Dragon Con sat around waiting. And everybody else in fandom sat around waiting. And I'm not going to throw him under the bus. Because JR already did it. <laughs> <laughs> it's okay. Rick is awesome. We love him. His books are amazing. So he gets a pass from me. Happened. He totally was like, I forgot to hit send on the email. So, I, I mean, just wish they hadn't gotten rid of the urban fantasy. Because putting everything in fantasy is like... It's just too much competition because urban fantasy is nowhere near as big as fantasy, even though it's fairly large. It's interesting you say that. So I think they have paranormal and urban together. No, they just have fantasy. There's, yeah. Well, there's the military fantasy. No, they, they change the categories each year, and I haven't. I put in my nominations and then forgot which category. Sorry. Um, but hopefully by this point that that this airs, the nominees are out and voting closes the Friday of Dragon Con, so August second, so that they can then I think it's August second, it may be the third, but so make so, sure to vote. Hmm? So this will air on the twelfth of of August. Um, and if you listen to what David said, you can figure out when we recorded this. But uh, as usual, dear listener, we will do the panel where we'll get as many as we can acquire in a short amount of time of the finalists to have on the various panels. That is something that is near and dear to Doc's heart, so we do it every year. Um, but with that said, you have um, one, David. Sure. Yeah, I mean, it doesn't beat much. I, I, you might be a vampire. I'm not quite sure. But... Um, so, David, we'll start with you. Can you tell listeners how they can find you? And as usual, it'll be in the show notes. Okay. Um, Amazon, for sure. Just uh, Google. I mean, search David Carrico. Uh, my website is davidcarricofiction.com. My Facebook writer page, writer page is David Carrico Fiction. And I think that's it. Oh. Okay. And what about you, John? How can mm -hmm. listeners and um, viewers find you? Um, well, I have a website. It uh, has actually two uh, addresses currently. It's vanstry.net or just johnvanstry.com. If you put my name in Google, you'll get me. I'm the only John Vanstry in the world. Did you play it that way? No. And it's kind of funny because my name goes <laughs> back like 600 years. <laughs> 
So it's he's like, yes, I took out all the competition. We do not ask where they went. <laughs> so if you ever wondered what happened after the Josh fight, you can look to John Van Stry and find out because he's the last one. All right. John, so uh, what about died a couple of years ago? Yeah. <laughs> what what about you, Declan? How can they find you online? You can find me at DeclanFinn.substack, DeclanFinn.com, UpstreamReviews.substack, because I have a book review site um, and I, where we only review good books because too many bad ones. Um, also, I'm, at more, I'm more or less active on Twitter and Facebook. I'm technically on every social media thing except for what's Trump's truth. And that's only because, you know, it's like, didn't get a chance to get on it. Because if I'm so, on every, I, if it's, a, if there is a social media platform, except for BitChute, I haven't figured out how to work that one yet. <laughs> so fun fact about John or Declan, he is the first and only person who has so many links in his bio because he's so all over the place that I ran out of characters on Anchor uh, FM. So I had to decide which one to prioritize. And I finally like, Declan, can you please set up a link tree for everything so we can at least get one that sends them to you? I love oh. link trees. Yes. We're going to do one for our show. And I'm going to, I'm looking at, um, once time permits, setting up uh, our account uh, for the podcast on BitChute and, Rumble, I want to find out how we can get it to automatically port our YouTube over uh, for people that want to listen outside of the YouTube ecosystem. Uh, and then last but not least, Declan mentioned his website where he reviews books. One of the things Doc and I have been batting around trying to get guests for, but we've talked about a panel, Fireside Chat, on book reviews, their importance, and, and their role in, the, in publishing. Uh, we had almost set up with a few... Uh, people who we can't name because they haven't confirmed and then life happened COVID-19 shut everything down and so we're just at the point of looking trying to schedule some of that now Declan you just got added to the list congratulations ah. <laughs> but uh, but that is something we are looking to do as well because I think our audience is geared more towards the readers and the listeners of audiobooks and I don't think all of them necessarily understand the value of of book reviews especially when every author you hear oh I never read my reviews so it to the reader, like, oh, they're not important then. They don't realize that reviews are for other readers. I read my reviews for so. a couple of reasons. Sometimes I get great ideas there, but it gives me a general sense of like, okay, what pissed this person off? All right, I got to do more of that. True, true. And then you get the uh, the diehards. There are some people who like had this one guy that followed like 12 or 14 authors and he would one star everything, but he bought and verified every book in ongoing series. I'm like, why do you buy it to give it a cut? If you hate it that much, why are you still paying for it? A fan who lives in New Jersey, he's an author. Not a, in my opinion, he's not a very good one. He has reviewed every single thing I've written under both my name and my pen name, which if you go to my website, it's obvious. I don't try to hide it. And he's given every single book three stars. And I finally asked him about it one day because I ran into him online on something. And he was talking. I said, why do you hate me so much? You've given every book. Oh, no, those are all good reviews. And know oh, an Amazon, a three-star review is a negative review. It even says so. Four and five are positive, three, two, and one are negative, and you've written these long reviews. It's like, if you hate me so much, why have you bought every single book of mine? 
He's like, um, I thought it was reviews. I, I got to rethink my thing here. And I don't know if he still if he stopped at that point. I, I, I stopped looking at it. But I always thought it was funny that here he is taking my books apart, trying to say all the things that I've done wrong. And to date, I've sold about a million copies of, of the stuff I've written. And, uh, and he has terrible sales. And I actually read one of his books, and I was quite unimpressed. I learned a long time ago, if you see someone they're doing way better than you with something, you know, try to figure out what they're doing right and what you're doing wrong. Don't go tearing them apart to try to prove you're better than them. No, you're not. Learn what they have learned from someone else. There's a lot to be said about trying to, you know, mimic successful people to learn their habits so you can be successful too, not just attack them. Okay, some some good life lessons. So write that down in your book, people. And uh, you can find us online at Twitter at twitter.com backslash SF underscore fantasy underscore show. Sierra Foxtrot underscore fantasy underscore show. Mostly we just post our uh, podcast and sometimes science news, but but we occasionally look at it. So you can you can contact us there. Speaking of contacting us, Doc will answer your email if you do at blastersandbladespodcast at gmail.com, blastersandbladespodcast at gmail.com, because she does not need to sleep, so send her the email. Uh, you can find us on our Facebook group where all the shenanigans happen, and if you're not uh, watching this, if you're listening, she's making all kinds of angry faces at me and like shaking her fist at the sky so you can just sort of visualize it. But uh, you can find us on Facebook where all the shenanigans happen at facebook.com backslash groups backslash Blasters and Blades podcast. Again, backslash groups backslash Blasters and Blades podcast. You can find us on our website at anchor.fm backslash blasters dash and dash blades. Again, anchor.fm backslash blasters tech and tech blades where you can support the show for as little as 99 cents a month. You can help keep the lights on or you can support the show over at buymeacoffee.com. Uh, backslash author J.R. Hanley. Again, buymeacoffee.com backslash author J.R. Hanley. Be sure to put it in the comment section when you do that, that it's for the podcast. And I promise I will keep Doc Seska and Nick Garber duly caffeinated. They will drink until their liver surrenders. Never surrender. All right, Doc, we've never asked you this, but how do you drink your coffee since I talked about caffeine? Uh, I drink it black with a little bit of cream. That, that works for me. That works for me. I don't want it as um, dark and black as my soul, like my colonel used to drink it. That's a li just a little too dark for me. I need to need to shed some light. So this will be our this will be our parting wisdom. What about you, John? How do you how do you take your coffee? I'm a tea drinker. Not much of a coffee drinker. Okay, what kind of tea though? For mornings, it's English breakfast tea. Okay. And for afternoons, it's uh, fairly often Irish breakfast tea, which is a little more mellow, and. Um, then just a couple, there's a couple different black teas I like. So if if you like iced tea, which I mean, if you're in the south, anywhere in the south or anywhere, yes, right tea. Now, really. it's required. Yeah, not just sweet, but get Lady Grey. It makes a really amazing iced tea. It brings out a lot of those citrus notes. It's beautiful. I have to check it out. I, I'm a bit of a tea snob. You should see my tea, my tea oh, locker. I grew up with a dad who drinks nothing but tea and a mom who drinks coffee. Because so, they didn't want to share. That's why they got together and it worked. So <laughs> only you were joking. Was, only you were joking. My father was such a tea snob, you could not put coffee in the teacup. Because if you put coffee in his cup that he drank tea out of, he could swear he would taste it forever. 
Uh, well, you can because coffee is a strong flavor. When yeah, I was in had, grad school in Philly, there. Go ahead. We had to have separate makers. We because if you tried to make tea in the coffee maker, the the result was abominable. I actually have an automated tea, <laughs> or an automatic tea maker. I have a couple yeah. of them because they don't make so, them anymore. So I bought a bunch. Yeah. <laughs> so, so when I was in grad school, there was a local coffee shop in, in Villanova that sold that had a tea that actually tasted like Juicy's, uh, Juicy Red, Big Red Gum, whatever, that brand. I've never been able to find it, but that's the one tea I actually liked. It wasn't sweet and nice. So, but for the rest of it, it's just uh, French vanilla creamer for me. But what about you, Declan? How do you, how do you consume it? Well, technically it's light and sweet, but uh, that's, that is comparative considering that most of the coffees I use have, are like 50% chicory. So they're stronger Why would you than do that to yourself? <laughs> because chicory is disgusting because sometimes <laughs> when i actually need to wake up it's okay coffee with chicory like okay i'm awake now so i don't think i've ever had coffee with chicory i have discovered it, i have it bonnie sweet cream it kind of makes your coffee taste like coffee ice cream nah. coffee with chicory is so what there's you a should get in in uh, new orleans when you get your beignet yeah, that's where we order it from. So, so we know it little works. little known fact, Declan, the, the chicory was why the South lost the war. <laughs> if they had just had real coffee, it'd have been a different country. Um, but but what about you, David? How do you consume your coffee? Uh, I don't. I grew up in a military family. My dad liked his coffee strong enough to walk itself into the living room, pour itself in his. Yes. Cup. <laughs> I never acquired the taste. Uh, I'm like John. Uh, Irish breakfast tea in the morning, straight Earl Grey in the evening, and uh, mass quantities of it. So, so when you make your your Earl Grey, do you say Earl Grey hot, and go all Picard on it? No, I was I was drinking You're Earl out. Grey long before Picard was even thought of. Now, what's your favorite okay, brand okay. Of Earl Grey though? Hmm? What's your favorite brand? The the best I can get locally is Twinings, but uh, I, I I can't remember the the brand off the top of my head. But I got I got an import from England one time that was just superb. But I can't remember yeah, what the my brand dad is. loves Fortnum and Mason, which is an check out UptonTea.com. Yeah, they're up in like I think Seattle or something like that, and they have every tea you can think of. That's where I get most of my tea from. I get my teas from Tivana locally, but unfortunately, oh, Tivanas are gone. So they have oh, yeah. 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 Really yeah, after Starbucks bought them out, uh, Tivana locally. There's a place with a there's a place at the local mall that is like Tivana, but you're lucky then. Starbucks. I live yeah. in Atlanta. We got a lot of great stuff down here. We also yeah. Have I'm in Texas, but I'm way out in the country. Well, not way out, but far enough out. As long as you're not in all right, Doc. Good. I, I couldn't stomach listening to all of them tell me they put pineapple on their pizza. So we won't ask. Can you bring us home and, and, and close this out for us, Doc? That's because you know that you might lose this one because you already lost the Pern argument. So, <laughs> I, I'm afraid that like you and Bane have ganged up on me and like this is some sort of conspiracy going on. So just close the episode for us. It's not my fault that they're right. So thank you for spending time with us um we do appreciate it because it is precious for nick garber 
in JR. I am Seska. This was the Blasters and Blades podcast. We'll be back next week, same time, same place, indulging our love of nerd culture, cheesy jokes, all things that go boom, and of course, torturing JR, because that's the best part.